Well, good morning. I want to welcome you for our worship time today, those here in our celebration service. Uh, we've got a great crowd this morning. Uh, just spent a moment or two over in our summit service. They've got a great crowd as well, baptizing uh, this morning in our summit service. And of course, we welcome all of those who are watching online and our television broadcasts. Uh, we have looked forward to today, and we're glad that we can open God's Word together. Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. Look at it on the screen, and then you can open your Bibles. Passage says, Then I saw the Lamb open one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come, come. So here he goes. Uh, today we get into the meat of the book of Revelation. Uh, we're going to focus today and over the next several weeks, if the Lord allows, on the end of time. I know people feel differently about a focus like this, and there are a lot of different kinds of emotions that people have expressed. Uh, some people are just fearful. Uh, and anytime you talk about the end of times and you talk about the return of Christ, some people are just fearful. And so they don't, frankly, want to hear about it. Uh, they're fearful of the end of time. Some people are very excited. In fact, some people are too excited <laughs> because uh, they're so anxious that uh, maybe we'll get a date or maybe we'll get some you know, piece of information, glean something that'll help us to know exactly what's going to happen and when it's going to happen. And then some people, frankly, are pretty indifferent about it because, well, they've got enough problems for today that they don't need to be worrying about the problems of tomorrow. Uh, but here's my, my request and my promise. Stick with us through this series, six or eight more weeks, I think. Uh, it'll likely turn out very different than uh, those that are hoping for uh, a date or some political analysis. You may be just a little bit disappointed. And, and it may turn out a little differently uh, than those who fear that we're just going to try to scare people with uh, news of the apocalypse, uh, hang with me. What we're going to do over the next few weeks is we are going to celebrate Jesus Christ. That's what this book is about. The book of Revelation that closes your Bible is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is both by and about Jesus. And so as we go through this and we talk about end time events and what the Bible says, certainly, but we're going to celebrate Christ, who he is how much he loves us, what he's done for us. And that will be an encouragement to us all. And so let me give you a couple of preliminaries as we get into this today. Uh, know that this will take a few weeks for us to finish this series. And I know some people have already asked questions, and I love questions, of course. Uh, but certainly there's some things we haven't talked about. This is week two. Give us a few more weeks. We'll get to most of those. Uh, the second thing is, and perhaps this uh, doesn't need to be said, but I want to say it, your pastor believes the Bible, okay? There's a reason why I've, I've waited five years to preach a message series on this, because I wanted you to be convinced before I began that I thoroughly believe the Bible. 
I believe it's true. I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture and the inspiration of Scripture. I believe in the sufficiency of Scripture and the relevancy of Scripture. I believe in the perspicuity of Scripture. I believe in the completion of Scripture and all those other adjectives you can come up with. I am a Bible person. Now, I know that many of you are reading books on Revelation and the end times just on your own as we're going through this as a church. And I think that's a great thing. Every time I've heard about that, and probably a couple of dozen people have shared with me even in the last few days, that is an encouragement to me. But <laughs> while I believe if you're reading good books, what they say, what those famous authors say about the essential things, the first order things, and what I say from God's word about the essential things, the first order of things, will be exactly the same. But there may be a little different perspective that I want you to know of uh, that may explain some of the differences that you're sure to see in some of those books. I think I've probably read most of the books that people have mentioned to me that they are reading. Uh, good books, helpful books. Uh, but here's a, a little bit of a difference in how I approach scripture. I certainly believe that God's word is true and it is the final authority uh, on what is true and what is not true. It is the final authority on, on what we know about the Lord and about the future and about everything else. It is the final authority. But I also believe and have respect for uh, the lessons that have been learned from 2,000 years of Christians interpreting the Bible. Does that make sense? I heard someone say a while back that Christian history, church history, uh, is, is like learning that something happened between the Apostle Paul and your grandmother, and that matters. And, and so, while I believe we should look to Scripture to determine doctrine and truth, I think it's helpful to look and see how people over the last 2,000 years have looked at that same scripture passage and how they have come to understand the truth. And so sometimes, especially in the book of Revelation, what I will teach you about this book will be a little less cutting edge uh, than what you might read in uh, books by more famous authors. I'm not trying to sell anything. <laughs> And not that they're falsely motivated, uh, but I'll take a really conservative approach to this book and every other book. I just think it's wise to be tempered uh, with uh, the lessons that we learn from, from history. Now, another preliminary, uh, I want to talk for a moment about timing and sequence. Uh, there's much more to studying the book of Revelation than just studying the timing uh, when will this happen? In the sequence, what will happen first, second, and third? Uh, much more. There's great gold to be gleaned in the book of Revelation. Uh, but timing and sequence is what everybody's curious about. And me too. I want to know the timing and the sequence. Uh, so let me, let me put that in perspective. Let's talk for a moment about the rapture. Have you ever heard that word, rapture? It's a biblical word, even though the word R-A-P-T-U-R-E doesn't appear in your Bible. It uh, comes from a Latin word, and it, it's right there. It's, it's in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the rapture of the church. What exactly is that? Well, the Bible says, and clearly says, there's, there's really no controversy about this. If you're a Bible-believing Christian, 
that there will be a time when Jesus will come back for his people. Uh, he'll come back for his, for his church, for all those who are living on that day will be caught up with Jesus in the air. And the Bible says not only those that are living, but those that are dead, though they are in paradise with the Lord, their bodies will be resurrected. And, and, and that really is the, the focus of a, of a different sermon on a different part of the Bible. But that's, that's going to happen. Uh, that is a first order issue. You know, there's some things when we look at the end time studies, there's some things that we'll disagree on because the Bible's just not very clear. And I'll point those out when we come to those. But there are some things that are crystal clear. Jesus is coming back is crystal clear in the Bible. And that Jesus is going to rapture his church, his people, is crystal clear in the Bible. We could look at a number of verses, uh, one of those, 1 Thessalonians 4, which I understand a lot of our adult Sunday school classes studied this passage this morning. Uh, that um, uh, wasn't uh, a part of our plan. I wish I could say I was uh, so, so good at planning that I worked that out, but it was just in the hands of the Lord. Uh, but here's what 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17 says. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the archangel's voice and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first and then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we will always be with the Lord. The rapture, the rapture. Now, when will the rapture happen? Do you wanna know? Pull out your pen. I'm gonna give you some answers. When will the rapture happen? There are really two questions in that one question when we say, when will the rapture happen? Uh, one, one thing people are asking is, when in history will the rapture happen? Will it happen today or uh, will it happen uh, during Ramadan in 2022, as some suggest? Or will it happen next year, the next year, 100 years from now? When in history will it happen? That's one question. And then the other question is, when in the sequence of events will it happen? What happens first, second, and third? So really two different questions, and we're gonna talk a little bit about both of those as we go through this, uh, go through this study. Uh, let me tell you though that the, that the timing and the sequence of when the rapture will occur, that is not a first order issue. And what do I mean by that? Well, uh, the fact that Christ is returning, you can't, Believe the Bible and not believe that. The fact that God will rapture his people, lift his people up to heaven, uh, you can't deny that and be a Bible-believing Christian. But the timing, what happens first, second, and third, and how all these different pieces fit together, frankly, um, that's something that we could disagree on and still be faithful to Scripture. Uh, because the Bible doesn't have as much clarity in that area as it does in, in some others. Uh, some very smart and well-studied and godly people through the years have had very different views. And if you think that everyone who does not agree with your sequencing of those events, if you believe all of those people are dummies, then that probably says more about you than it does them, okay? Uh, this is something we have to approach with some humility. Uh, now. As I said, the fact that Christ is coming back and the fact that the church will be raptured, Christians will be raptured, those are first order uh, beliefs and clearly taught in scripture. Another part of that that is also clearly taught in scripture is that it is imminent. 
Imminent doesn't mean it's going to happen today or tomorrow or even this year, but imminent means that it could happen at any moment. Christ could come back today. I may not finish this sermon. Uh, Christ could come back at any time. It is imminent. I think of what the Bible says in James 5, be patient until the Lord's coming. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. could happen at any time. So how then does the rapture, we're studying the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, uh, how does the rapture fit into this book? And so many people, even after last week's message, were asking that question. I think it's a great question, and I'm glad people have asked. And uh, so what, what, should we, what should we know about that? Well, I shared with you last week that I believe the very next event on God's end-time calendar, what's going to happen next, is what we read back in Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, when it says that Jesus will take the scroll from the hand of the Father. And I won't re-preach last week's message, but that's a very significant event, and, and it means much. And it starts a series of events that will unfold. I believe that's the next event in history. And I shared that last week. And then I believe the next event in the book of Revelation is what we just read, Revelation 6-1. Jesus begins to open this scroll that uh, both indicates what's going to happen next, but it's also the act of opening the scroll executes God's, God's plan. Well, what then about the rapture? What then about the rapture? Well, let me give you some facts about the rapture and the book of Revelation. First of all, Revelation, the book, never mentions the rapture. It doesn't use the word. It doesn't talk about the event. It doesn't hint at it. You can't even turn your head sideways and, you know, hold your jaw funny and find it in there. It's just not in there. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means God didn't want to put it in there. I mean, it doesn't really mean any more than that. But it is a fact God didn't put the details or even the mention of the rapture in the book of Revelation. So now fact number two, God gave us in the book of Revelation, God gave John, who then gave to us in the book of Revelation, exactly what God meant to give to us. Uh, God is not up in heaven today saying, oh, I knew I left something out of that book and I wish I would have remembered the rapture. I can't believe I forgot the rapture. And no, no, the Lord looks at the book of Revelation and it is exactly what he meant to give to us. Uh, if he had it to do over again, God would give us exactly the same thing as he's given to us. Now, that brings us to fact number three. If we stress, if we stress over putting the rapture, a real event told of in scripture, if we stress over figuring out exactly where in the book of Revelation, which describes many end time events, if we stress over placing it in the book of Revelation, well, I think it ought to be here and I think it ought to be there and I'll fight you if you don't think it ought to be over here. If we stress about that, I really think we've missed the point of the book of Revelation. Okay, if, if, it were, if it were an integral part of understanding the book, where in the book does the rapture happen, uh, I think God would have just put a star right there and said, here it is, here's the rapture between this verse and that verse. Uh, the rapture is very important, first order issue. We're gonna talk a lot about the rapture, in fact, 
uh, over the next few weeks. It's not going to be a minor subject because it is a major subject. But the book of Revelation means what the book of Revelation means wherever uh, the rapture might, might fall. Uh, if you think, and this is my last uh, fussing statement, but I think it's important to say, if you think that you have figured out in the book of Revelation and you have some logical argument for exactly where the rapture should be and it could be no other place, and all the other people through history who many of them have spent their entire lives studying this, that all those people are just wrong, then you need to take a humble pill, right? Uh, we, um, and I'll tell you where I think it is, and you know, you're, you're welcome to be wrong if you disagree. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, I, I certainly am not, uh, not afraid to give my view, and I will, uh, but I, um, I, I give it with some humility. I might change it in, in a week or two. Uh, I don't think I will. I've held it a long time. And, and, I, and I've studied. I do think there are some indications here. It's not just a dart uh, thrown against a, a wall. Uh, but my hesitancy is this. It is a little bit of an artificial construct. You know what I mean? I mean, we're doing something. When we, when we try to figure out here in the book of Revelation where the rapture is never mentioned, here is where it goes, and the whole book then hinges on that point, we have done something very artificial to a, to, to, to a book, and we have to be careful. All right, all that said, uh, where does it fit? Where does it fit? Well, I believe it uh, would come after, and this won't mean something to, to, to some of you, and that's fine, but I think it would have to come after, I shouldn't say have to, I believe it would come after Revelation 3.22. Those are the seven letters of Christ to the church. And I believe it would come before Revelation 6.1 that we read a moment ago where uh, the, the scroll is opened and the first seal is, is opened. Uh, so you get a get hundred genuine theologians in here and scholars and, and, and you, you'll come up with not a hundred views but probably 30 or 40 views uh, but that's that's what I think somebody will say after the sermon well pastor why not Revelation 4.1 uh, well Revelation 4.1 is between Revelation 3.22 and 6.1 so maybe maybe uh, but um, I'd probably pick right before Revelation 6 but uh, there are good reasons for all those different uh, things here's the point of the of the rapture. Can I tell you the most important thing about the rapture? I mean, people have wondered, you know, uh, do you go with your clothes or without your clothes? You know, uh, uh, we'll, we'll, um, you know, what if you're driving a car and, you know, what if somebody gets left? And, you know, we've all heard stories of, um, you know, people tricking others into thinking that the rapture had, uh, had happened. I can remember uh, even back in college, uh, coming back to my dorm one day and, and it just didn't seem to be anybody around. And, I thought, you know what? It has happened and I have been left. <laughs> but let me tell you the most important thing about the rapture. We need to be prepared. Because one day the Lord is coming for his children and we want to be counted in that number. And it could be today. It could be today. But you know, there are reasons, uh, even if it's not today, there are a lot of reasons to be prepared. We'll talk about some of those as we, uh, as we go on. So I want us to read... Revelation chapter 6, we're going to look at 6 and 7 uh, this morning. And so we read verse 1, let's just continue reading. Uh, if the rapture takes place before chapter 6, you should know this, that means that Christians have been taken away and are not here 
at least those who were saved before the rapture, are not present on the earth uh, in Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. It really doesn't change what chapter 6 and 7 teach us if uh, the children of God are here or not here, but I, I believe most likely that the children of God have been raptured by the time we get to chapter 6, verse 1, and, and so I'll, I'll walk through that with that frame, frame of mind. Look at verse 2. I looked and there was a white horse. You've heard of the four horses of the apocalypse? This is where that comes from. I looked and there was a white horse. Its rider held a bow. A, a crown was given to him and he went out as a conqueror in order to conquer. Verse 3, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And then another horse went out, a fiery red one, and its rider was allowed to take peace from the earth so that the people would slaughter one another. And a large sword was given to him. Verse 5, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. And I looked, and there was a black horse, and its rider uh, held a set of scales in his hand. And then I heard something like, a voice among the four living creatures say, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, but do not harm the oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, verse 7, I heard the voice of the fourth creature say, come, and I looked, and there was a pale green horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following after him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill by the sword, by famine, by plague, and by, by wild animals. Uh, we've talked before that some of what we see in the book of Revelation is a very literal thing. Some of it is symbolic, but all of it is real, and all of it is true. Now, we might ask the question when we read about these seals and these horses, is this something, Pastor? Let's be clear. Is this something that is past, it's already happened, is it present, is it happening today, or is this some future event, some future event? Uh, well, I really believe that it's, uh, that it's all three. It's all three, and let me, let me tell you why I believe that. Uh, the book of Revelation was given uh, to encourage and to benefit all generations of Christians. And so if this were just merely a look into the future, just headlines, news headlines of some future date, uh, it would not be an encouragement to people in the past and maybe even people in the present. But this is a book that was meant to encourage uh, the people in John's church. John was the one who wrote this down. And it's uh, been meant to encourage Christians through the years. Uh, if, um, if we just take a look at these Troubles, tribulation is the word the Bible uses. Uh, we can see that some of this has happened and is happening. Uh, in fact, if you, if you were to look over to Matthew chapter 24, Jesus talks about the end, and he is a whole chapter he gives, a sermon on the end. Uh, let me just read a little bit of that to you because there's a key phrase that Jesus uses. Uh, Matthew 24, 4 says, Jesus replied to them, watch out that no one deceives you. It's interesting that Jesus begins his talk about the end times by warning us be, against being deceived. It's easy to be deceived here. He says in the next verse, verse 5, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Messiah and they will deceive many. You are going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed because these things must, must take place, but the end is not yet. So you see here the wars and rumors of wars. 
that Jesus mentions in Matthew 24, that parallels what we just read in verses 3 and 4 of Revelation 6. Now, when are there going to be wars and rumors of wars? Well, there have always been wars and rumors of wars, right? That's in the past. It's in the present. Did you know that today there are 22 wars going on? 22 wars, if you cut off uh, a war, you don't call it a war unless a thousand people or more have been killed on one side or the other. There are 22 wars right now today. Uh, and notice Jesus says, when that happens, the end is not yet. Um, we should always be prepared. And we should always be preparing for the return of Christ. But at the same time, Christians, we need to be guarded about claiming every time there's another news headline that Jesus is coming back now. Because, listen, we're, we're ruining our credibility. We're going beyond what Scripture says. And the world no longer believes us. And so we say, a Christian will stand and say, there's a war in Ukraine, and the Middle East is in trouble, and I heard about a computer called the Mark of the Beast, and so obviously Jesus is coming back in the next 60 days. Now, the world hears some crazy story like that. Christ doesn't come back in 60 days, and so what does the world assume? They don't just assume that that's some crackpot that got that one detail wrong. They just assume the whole Bible is untrue. See, there's proof it didn't happen. Well, the Bible never said that. And so we, we destroy the credibility of Scripture in the minds of so many people. Look at uh, verse 7. Well, on the screen, uh, Matthew 24, 7. For nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, earthquakes in various places. Now, is that past, present, or future? Well, it's all three. Uh, it's a parallel of what we read here in Revelation chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. Uh, did you know that 100 million people died of famine in the 1900s? Uh, currently, there are 47 million people living in famine or near-famine conditions in the world. Uh, there's a famine in Yemen that kills 130 children a day, seven days a week. So famine is not just a future event, it's a present reality. Now look at, look at uh, verse 8 on the screen. Matthew 24, 8, all these things are the beginning of labor pains. Now, let's talk about labor pains. I'm, a, I'm smart enough to know that men shouldn't talk much about labor pains because we don't know anything about it. Uh, but one thing I do know, and just one thing, they can last a long time. Amen? Amen? I've uh, uh, heard that they can last a long time. And so the Bible says here that Jesus says, I should say, that these things happen, rumors and rumors of war, famine, earthquakes, pestilence, uh, and these are the beginning of the labor pains. So let's be cautious, let's be cautious. Uh, the book of Revelation is written for today. Now it's also written for the future. And while these things are happening today, a thousand times what we see today will happen in the future just as it's described here. This is past, present, and future. Let's don't. Let, let's don't ignore the present, but let's don't discount the future. This is a, a prophecy of what's going to happen when these uh, great tribulations are unleashed on the earth. Uh, it'll be a terrible time. And we haven't seen the worst of it yet, and won't today. It'll take us till next week. But let's continue reading now in chapter 6, verse 9. He says, and I'm back in Revelation. Uh, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered because of the word of God and the testimony that had been given. 
And they cried out with a loud voice, voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? And so they were each given a white robe and they were told to rest a little while longer until the number would be completed of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who were going to be killed just as they had been. This shows us persecution, terrible persecution and martyrdom. Now, is that past, present, or future? Well, it's, it's all three. Uh, John, in his time, had seen 11 of the 12 disciples uh, executed for their faith. He was the only one still alive, and he was imprisoned uh, because, of, because of his faith. Uh, the persecution of Christians has, uh, has been a constant through history. In fact, the Center for the Study of Global Christianity estimates that over 1.6 million Christians were killed for their faith between the year 2000 and 2010. 70 million Christians have been martyred since the time of Christ, and over one half of those happened in the 20th century. Uh, you might ask, uh, how could these be Christians? I thought you said, Pastor, that the Christians had been uh, raptured before these uh, terrible events began. Uh, well, I believe they have. Uh, I believe that's what Bible, the Bible teaches. Uh, but these are people who have chosen to follow Christ during the tribulation, during this terrible time. Uh, people will be saved during that time. I'll come back to that in a moment. Let's look at verse 12. Then I saw him open the sixth seal, and a violent earthquake occurred. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of hair. The entire moon became like blood. Uh, the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its unripe figs when shaken by high wind. Look down at verse 15. Then the kings of the earth, the nobles, the generals, the rich, the powerful, and every slave and free person hid in the caves among the rocks of the mountains. This is a terrible time. God is unleashing his judgment upon the world. Verse 16, 17. Let's pick up there. Because the great day of their wrath has come, who is able to stand? Now, that's a great question. Who is able to stand? Who, is able, who will be able to stand when these future events happen? Uh, but, the, but the question is, is a question for today as well. Who is able to stand? Who is able to stand with all the difficulties and the pressures in life? Who is able to stand? Who is able to stand? Uh, let's look at chapter 7, verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing the four corners of the earth, restraining the four winds of the earth so that no wind could blow on the earth or on the sea or any creature. And so there's an interlude here. So we've seen six of the seven seals opened. Uh, we still have the last seal. And the last seal is going to bring judgment that will take us chapters to unpack. It will be a terrible judgment. It will be a judgment that brings other judgments. Uh, but there is, a, there is an interlude here, chapter 7. Look at, um, let's see how we can best work through this. Uh, look at verse 4. So much here if we had more time. He says, though, in verse 4, And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the Israelites. And he goes through and it lists a census of those people. I did want to mention this because this is something that so many people get, get wrong. And there are whole Christian, or not Christian, but whole religious groups built on these verses right here. The Jehovah's Witnesses are one. Uh, take this and they create some fantasy out of this. Who are these 144,000 people? And there are many views on it, but I believe that they're literal Israelites. They're Jewish people that God has set aside, uh, that they're living at that time, that God will use 
to be evangelists uh, during this uh, tribulation. And God has made some promises in the Old Testament through the nation of Israel, through the Jewish people. And God will uh, fulfill those promises. And Israel will play a role in the end in a significant way, significant way. And we see some of that hinted at there, and we'll follow up in the, in the weeks to come. So let's, uh, let's look down now to verse 9. It says, After this I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, uh, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Don't let anybody tell you that there are only 144,000 people going to heaven. I know that that's what uh, some of these uh, false religious groups will say. Uh, that is a strange, perverted interpretation of the verses above, but it would be clearly refuted by verse 9 if, if someone wanted to believe that. There's a great multitude, more than can be counted here. Uh, they cry with a loud voice. Let's skip down to verse 13. Then one of the elders asked me, Who are these people in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. Why are you asking me? You tell me. And then he told me, it says in verse 14, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So these are people who have been saved during this terrible judgment. God has taken the, uh, the Christians out of the earth, out of the world, uh, but the gospel remains, and people have been saved, and this is such a terrible time. Many of those that have been saved have lost their lives. It's a terrible, terrible time. There are two quick things to note about this. Uh, first, God's desire to reach people of all nations, tribes, people, languages, and tongues. Do you see that here? Who, who is it? It's people, all kind of people, all kind of people. Listen, can I just say something as, as, as pastor for a moment? Our church, and this isn't a new thing at all, but our church is a church that wants to reach all people uh, in the city and county of Nacogdoches. Uh, we want to reach people, what does it say, of every tribe, of every tongue, every people, every language. And somebody might ask, why are we working so hard specifically right now to reach our friends in the Hispanic community? Well, because uh, we hadn't been so good at that in the last couple of years. And we want to be better. We want to reach all people. And so we're specifically investing in that. Now, you're going to hear in a moment, if you didn't hear earlier in the service, I know it's happening at different places in the two different services this morning, you're going to hear about an event uh, that's coming up called Dia del Nino. I had to practice that. I'm not good with my uh, Spanish pronunciation. Uh, but it's a children's event uh, that will be happening this Saturday. The information is in your worship guide. And I want to encourage you, if you have children, I know life is busy and there's ball games and there's a million other things, but I want you to bring your children. I don't have children, but I'm excited about coming. I mean, I have children, but not young children. Um, but here's why we should all be a part of this. Not just because it'll be a good event for the kids, but because this is our church investing in a ministry that that I believe, that we believe, will pay dividends for the kingdom for years to come. And as, as, as we come together this Saturday, I tell you, I've got a thousand other things to do. I bet you have 2,000 other things to do. But I'm going to be here with bells on because I just want my presence, if nothing else, to be an investment in this ministry so that our church continue to reach people of all ethnicities, all races, all languages. If God puts them in Nacogdoches, I want to reach them, right? Listen, 
If God puts them in Nacogdoches, we want to reach them. That's, um, that's the way to look in heaven, and that's the way we want it to look here every Sunday. Uh, but I want you to see a second thing here. There's a great revival. Did you know in history there have been some times where there have been unusual revivals? We think about Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Thousands of people swept into the kingdom. Uh, there was a, uh, a revival in the 16th century with the Protestant Reformation, and thousands of people were swept into the kingdom, millions maybe. And then there was the Second Great Awakening, the Great Awakening, and then the Second Great Awakening that happened right here in America. Uh, and uh, thousands and thousands of people swept into the kingdom. And there, there are other stories like that. And, and that's just a testimony to the, to the love and patience of God. It reaches out and sometimes in an in unusual way sweeps people into the kingdom. Well, the greatest revival. Do you know when the greatest revival is going to happen? It's going to happen here. It's going to happen in Revelation 6. And this terrible time is going to come in this great tribulation and people will be being killed and there's going to be famine and war and all kinds of things. We're, we're going to scare each other to death over the next few chapters. But in the midst of this, there's going to be a great revival. And millions of people, I believe, will be swept into the kingdom. So let's stop here. For, let's stop here. And we're not stopping, stopping. But as you can see, all that's introduction, now time for the sermon. But I promise you, it'll be short or <laughs> Medium. So I just sat down this week and I just read chapter 7. And I read chapter 7 and I read chapter 7 and over and over and over. And uh, of course it's about this great tribulation. But the more you read it, the more I read it, the more I noticed not just the tribulation, but I noticed the contradictions. I had to read it a bunch of times, but, but eventually I was able to see the contours of this chapter uh, and, and notice that there are three surprising, shocking contradictions in this chapter. And all three of them are incredibly good news. So can I point them out just right quick and then we'll go home. Number one, the tribulation is the victory. The tribulation is the victory. We just talked about it. This will be the worst time in the history of earth. The worst time in the history of man. The calamity will be beyond anything we can imagine. The wars, the violence, the famine, the pestilence, the everything. It'll be beyond our greatest, worst, most awful imagination. The tribulation. But the tribulation will be the victory, right? In the midst of this hardship, Millions of people will be swept into the kingdom. Millions of people. Now, what do we learn from that? Well, we learn a very important thing. Our tribulation, our most difficult time. I'm not just talking about the tribulation of the end times. It would be true of that. But the tribulations we face today. Do you have some tribulations in your life? Do you have some difficulties, some hardships, some calamity, some tragedy? Do you have tribulation? Yes. Here's the principle. Here's the great contradiction. God takes the tribulations of our lives and he redeems the crisis and he wins a victory in our lives. Romans 8.28 reminds us that all things work together for the good, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Listen, if you're going through a hardship right now, God can redeem that hardship and he can use it to bring victory in your life. Maybe you're here today because there's some great 
tragedy or some great hardship and you do not know Christ as your Savior, listen, listen. God may use this terrible thing to bring you to Jesus. And you'll look back on it and you'll say, what a great contradiction because the tribulation became the victory. The tribulation became the victory. If you're going through a hard time, I promise you, God wants to redeem it and use it for something in your life. You should be asking him and looking. You should be surrendering to him. God, what do you want to do? Lost people need to be saved. Saved people need to renew their walk with the Lord. God will take the tribulation and turn it into a victory. I think there's one more part of just that same thing. If you have waited, if you have procrastinated, if you have delayed responding to the Lord, I believe his arms are open today. All of these people we read about in Revelation 6 and 7 that come to know the Lord, they all waited too long, in a sense. They all procrastinated. They all refused. But God, because he is so long-suffering, he is so patient, God gives them one more chance. One more chance. And they respond, and God embraces them. So this isn't a reason to wait. This will be a terrible time uh, to respond to the Lord because it will be the worst time. But I think the lesson for us is this. If you have waited to follow Christ, I believe today is your time. And he waits, and he is so patient. We don't deserve it. These people in 6 and 7, they don't deserve it. They had their chances. But we can make the argument, God, wipe them out. Don't anybody get saved in the tribulation. Those people had their chance. Let them suffer for their sins and die and be miserable and be hopeless. But if that's what they deserve, it's what we deserve. But we see here that even though that's what they deserve, God still extended his arm. And if you've waited, God extends his arm to you today. Here's the second tribulation or the second contradiction. The blood is the bleach. The blood is the bleach. Look at verse 14. I'm going to go quickly. But it says, I said to him, sir, you know, then he told me, these are the first coming out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Now, I can tell you honestly, I don't do a lot of laundry. But, uh, but there's something there that's a contradiction. Do you know what it is? He says they were washed white with what? With blood. Now, I don't say know a lot about laundry, but I, I understand that one of the most difficult stains to get out of a white cloth is, is blood. I think that's on purpose because I think the Lord is teaching us that the stain of sin is hard to remove. Somebody ever hurt you, lied about you, and then they said, I'm sorry. And maybe they were, but the pain still remains, right? The stain of sin is hard to remove. And we've all sinned against God, a holy God. We have shown disrespect. We have rebelled against God. And the stain of sin is hard to remove. But here's the great contradiction that is such good news. The blood turns out to be not what causes the stain, but it turns out to be what removes the stain. Jesus shed his blood, and his blood, what we see is that which stains. His blood is what washes us white as snow. 
I can be right with the Father, not because I have sinned less than somebody, not because I have sinned to a lesser degree than somebody, but I can be right with the Father because the blood of Christ shed on the cross pays the penalty for my sin, washes me white. Isaiah 118, though your sins are scarlet, they will be as white as snow. They, they are crimson red, they will be white like wool. The blood is the bleach. I think of Zechariah 13.1. It's one of those verses that nobody knows, really. But listen, it says, On that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the residents of Jerusalem to wash away sin and impurity. Even those that heard this prophecy wouldn't have understood what it meant. The prophet just said there's going to be a fountain one day in Jerusalem and you'll be able to go to this fountain and, and somehow the power of God, this fountain will wash away your sins. And they must have imagined a, you know, water, pure water spewing out of some fountain and washing, somehow washing away sins. But we know the fountain is different. The fountain is the blood of Jesus. And the blood becomes the bleach. Listen to the words of a song that we often sing. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood and lose all their guilty stains. The, the blood is the bleach that makes us white as snow. And then the last one, very quickly, the lamb is the shepherd I saw that one last. It's, it's, it's in verse 17. For the lamb who's at the center of the throne. And we've been talking about Jesus last three weeks now. He's the lamb, the, the lamb slaughtered for our sins. But notice it says here in verse 17, this is wrong. I mean, it's not wrong, but it's a contradiction that teaches us something. For the lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. The lamb is the shepherd. The lamb is the shepherd. Here's what's so amazing about Jesus is he is both the lamb who died to pay the penalty for our sins. He is the lamb who has been slaughtered for us. In, in, in all the Old Testament, they would sin. They would bring a lamb. They, they deserve to die, but instead of them dying, the lamb would die. And that was a picture of the lamb, Jesus, who would one day come and he would die that would fully forgive our sins. Jesus is the lamb, but he's not just the lamb. He's the shepherd. That doesn't make sense. The lamb, the shepherd, the shepherd leads the lamb. You're one or the other. You're not both, but Jesus is both because not only has he died for our sins, but now he leads us. That's what a shepherd does. The shepherd, I wrote down two things. The shepherd brings back the wayward sheep. We see that in the gospels where the shepherd goes and finds the wayward one. The shepherd, Jesus wants to bring back the wayward people. If you've been wandering from the Lord, Jesus wants to bring you back. He's your shepherd. And then the shepherd leads us to sustenance and life. Listen, a lot of people believe of Jesus as the lamb. I want Jesus to save me from my sins, but that's as far as they go. Now, Jesus is the lamb, but Jesus wants also to be the shepherd. He is the shepherd. He wants to lead you. Listen, the Christian life is not about simply Jesus being the lamb. That's where it begins. It's also about Jesus being the shepherd. Will you walk with him? Would you let him lead you? Would you be a part of the family of Christ, the church, and Sunday school, and all the activities so, so you learn together with other believers how Jesus leads us? Don't, don't just call Jesus the lamb. Call him your shepherd. That's where the joy comes. 
Listen, each of these contradictions requires a, a response. It demands a response. The tribulation is the victory. What does the Lord want to do inside the hardships you're facing today? The blood is the bleach. How will you celebrate and embrace the forgiveness of Christ? And the lamb is the shepherd. How are you letting the lamb of God lead you today in paths of righteousness? Heads bowed, eyes closed. Father in heaven, thank you uh, that even in these terrible future times of tribulation and stress, that you will reign sovereign, people will be saved, your will be done. And Father, today, when we don't know if that's a, a week from now or a hundred years from now, I pray that you'll help us to embrace these great contradictions and honor you with every day that we have. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together as we respond.